The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Retreaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We want to know what happened. Yeah. What's your fear? I fear she's not coming back. I fear we may never find her at all. Social media is very much a part of our everyday lives. If you've managed to unplug, so to speak, for more than just a few hours at a time, it's genuinely an admirable accomplishment. A lot of us are glued to our phones, and it's hard to even imagine a time before the digital age as we know it today. We rely on lightning speed internet and technology for information, amusement, communication, finances, you name it. Almost everything we do within our day-to-day routine comes back to some type of wireless device in our pocket. While unlimited internet connectivity certainly makes life easier in a lot of ways, it can be just as easily distracting or even dangerous. This sort of endless accessibility to the virtual world and unverified information cannot be taken lightly, nor should how dependent we have become on its consumption. In this week's episode, we'll explore the concept of trial by social media and how the presumption of innocence in a case is often lost long before a suspect or person of interest ever steps foot in a courtroom. As human beings, the very nature of how our brains learn and connect information includes probabilistic pattern recognition. We are innately predisposed to identify patterns in a series or system of otherwise complex and at times unrelated information. It's a literal mechanism of human adaptation and survival. But when that information is channeled through biased news reports, sensationalized accounts on social media, clickbait headlines, and yes, even true crime podcasts like ours, the end result can be undeniably destructive. And though the old adage, innocent until proven guilty, certainly rings true in a legal sense in this country. In a social sense, the opposite is often assumed by default. It's always the husband, they say. But is it really? In a case where all clues point toward the one man who should and might know something, a total absence of physical evidence will no doubt leave you scratching your head in confusion, just like the rest of us. Sunday, May 24th, 2020. Husband and wife Matthew Moore and Emily Noble had their day planned out together. It was Emily's 52nd birthday, and the pair decided they would venture off and celebrate by spending some quality time with one another. Being the nature enthusiasts that they both were, they decided to begin their morning by traveling to Bookdale, Ohio, where they visited a natural spring. From there, they would head back home to the town of Westerville and stop by the Field of Heroes, a Memorial Day exhibit where Matt and Emily enjoyed a picnic together. They took selfies, smiling, as was seen on the couple's Facebook pages. Afterward, they made their way over to Uptown Westerville, where all of the best local bars and restaurants are located. More photos can be seen of Emily and Matt at the Coblay Grill, where they'd enjoyed a fish fry and hit various other pubs hopping around the town that afternoon. Generally speaking, it appeared both were in good spirits and having a great time. The two had been drinking but returned home fairly early. Emily's phone, however, ceased to show any sort of activity on her end, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. If you were to ask Matt, he'd tell you they arrived home, hung out, had sex, and then fell asleep. When Matt woke up to use the restroom in the middle of the night, he decided not to wake Emily upon his return to the master bedroom. Therefore, he instead chose to sleep in his late son Joey's old room. Considerate, perhaps, but when the sun rose that Memorial Day morning, on Monday, May 25th, 2020, everything would change. By the time Matt finally dragged himself out of bed, surely struggling from the alcohol-induced events of the evening before, he realized that Emily was gone. Initially, Matt wasn't worried when he woke up at around 10.30 that morning. Emily was a very independent person, 
and she'd probably just gone out to run some errands or to go for a walk as she often did. While Matt was still in bed hours later, he lazily texted his wife, asking if they were still going to the Memorial Day cookout they'd planned on attending. Are we still going to this party or what? No response. Still not finding the ambition to roll out of bed, Matt waited a while longer before texting again. I guess we aren't going? Still nothing. Next, Matthew decides to use the Find My iPhone feature on his cellular device. He apparently had access to Emily's enabled location services and could see that her phone was actually still inside the house. This is when he figured maybe he should finally get up and investigate further. Matt exited the bedroom only to find his wife's cell phone and wallet containing all of her credit cards and identification still there. By now, hours had passed. It was late afternoon by this point and Matt began to worry. It wasn't like Emily to be away for this extended amount of time, at least without giving Matt a heads up. She was known to be extremely dependable and punctual. It just wasn't like her to blow off a friend's barbecue. Not sure of what to do next, Matt picked up Emily's phone and called one of her closest friends, Celeste Groan. Celeste picked up thinking it was her girlfriend on the other line. When she heard Matt's voice, she instantly became concerned. Matt asked Celeste if she'd seen Emily. She responded by saying that she had not and asked what was going on. Matt filled her in and asked what he should do next, given that so much time had passed since he'd last seen her. It was now well into the early evening hours of the following day, and Celeste insisted that he call the police. According to her recollection of the phone call, he hesitated and said something to the effect of, Well, don't I have to wait 24 hours or something? Matthew's response instinctively struck Emily's friend as odd. She urged him to call the police once more, at which point he complied. Westerville police officer Robert Hollis arrived at Emily and Matt's condo shortly thereafter. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Alexis. This her? Yeah. That's your wife? Oh. Okay. You, you looked just like her for like a second. Oh my God, there she is. As soon as Matthew answered the door, the officer responding on scene noticed a woman coming around the corner. He asked Matthew if that was his wife. Matt genuinely shows signs of relief momentarily, believing Emily must have returned right then until he pokes his head out around the corner, only to see her friend Celeste, who had just shown up at their condo. Okay, so what's going on? She's uh, uncharacteristically missing. Okay. Uh, her wallet's here. Here's her wallet. Some money. Her phone's here. Celeste stands next to Matt as he explains to the officer his concerns. He seems out of sorts, a bit disheveled perhaps, but he isn't necessarily acting erratically, though he does seem eerily calm given the nature of the circumstances that brought them all there together in front of the couple's condo. He informs Officer Robert Hollis of the Westerville Police Department that he had gone through Emily's cell phone and identified an unknown number that she had previously called. He explains that he did a little, quote, investigating and determined through a Facebook search that the phone number belonged to Emily's longtime friend, the same man who had invited her to the Memorial Day picnic after the two had purportedly recently reconnected online. Matt then explains that he used Emily's phone to call the man, but the man reported back to him that she was not with him at the barbecue, as she had never actually shown up. Celeste informs Officer Hollis that she had last seen Emily on Friday after coming over to the couple's condo, explaining that she had also exchanged several text messages with Emily throughout the weekend, the last being the night before when Celeste wished her a happy birthday. Emily responded shortly after 6 p.m. with an emoji smiley face, but she never said anything after that. Matt also explains to Officer Hollis how Emily has a tendency to forage for edible plants in the woods and trails surrounding their condo, suggesting that she may have simply gone for a walk. He and Celeste then tell the officer of the various trails and spots she is known to frequent on her foraging walks in the area. 
During the interaction, Matt stands much of the time with his eyes down, and his hands either tucked in his pockets or placed confidently at each hip. He expresses concern because Emily rarely leaves the house without her phone when going for walks, because as he explains it, she is, quote, careful when going out alone. Shortly before heading inside the house, Matt can be seen in the body camera footage explaining to Celeste that he had this, quote, gut feeling right here when my son died, same thing, hit me like right fucking here at the top, while patting a hand to his stomach. After answering a few more of the officer's questions, Matt is then escorted inside the residence while Celeste meets with another officer, who had just arrived on scene to be interviewed separately. Does she suffer from any, any illnesses? Does she have dementia? Uh, has she ever threatened to harm herself? Ever done this before? Okay. Um, are you, is y'all's relationship healthy? Did she never threaten to leave you or anything like that? No? Okay. No more than any other relationship. We'll learn soon enough that Matt isn't being entirely honest here. When asked if there'd been any trouble in their marriage, he provides a response that downplays the actual truth. But we'll touch on that later. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While Officer Hollis collects additional details about Matt and Emily's comings and goings the night before, during her birthday celebration, he notices something in the master bedroom while quickly glancing inside. Alright, so I see that the bed was made. Did you do that or she did that? That is, uh, I just noticed that. You're right, I Continuing on with his line of questioning, Officer Hollis, as we'll later learn, is compiling a timeline of events and trying to determine if, according to Matt's theory, Emily Noel got up early, made the bed herself, and then went for a walk, taking none of her personal belongings with her. Or that something happened the night before, and neither one of them slept in that bed at all. Matt then describes in vivid detail the primary walking path that he and Emily take while foraging, giving Officer Hollis directions so that he might search the area. When asked if he had gone and checked the path himself to see if he could find his wife, Matthew responds that he had not. He then walks into the master bedroom with Officer Hollis, who instinctively looks around each side of the bed. There, to one side, he notices what appears to be a hastily laid pile of clothing. He asks Matthew if these are the clothes that Emily was wearing the night before, but Matthew responds that they are not. At one point during their interaction, Officer Hollis's supervisor arrives on scene, so he briefs him of the situation before reconnecting with Matthew Moore. They then both head into the garage to have a look at Emily's car. All right, sir, keys are in the car. She's really small. She's on her mom's project five foot ten, so she's way up. I'll check the trunk. Oh no, no, I understand, but I do. At worst case scenario. Audibly notes here that the driver's seat in Emily's car is still positioned all the way forward, explaining that she has a very tiny frame, standing just 5 feet 2 inches tall and weighing barely 100 pounds. Matt then walks Officer Hollis back into the condo through the garage door, re-entering the home's kitchen, after agreeing to retrieve the address from the Bookdale Natural Spring the couple had visited the day before. While Matt searches through his cell phone, Officer Hollis asks him if there were any dishes left out from earlier that morning 
in the event Emily may have made herself breakfast before leaving. He responds that no, there were no dishes left out, while showing the officer the inside of their refrigerator, reiterating how, quote, small his wife is, explaining that she rarely eats leftovers, let alone food from restaurants. Officer Hollis looks around the condo as Matt Moore then walks further into the home back into the open concept living area. In the footage, you can briefly see a small saucepan left there on the stove in the otherwise immaculately clean living space. In addition, there is a large guitar case positioned directly in front of the fireplace on the floor, and it's open, but it never draws any discussion or inquiry. The two men then briefly re-enter the couple's master bedroom, peering into the carefully organized walk-in closet. Officer Hollis asks Matthew again if he sees anything out of place, or if he sees any of the clothing that Emily was wearing the evening before. Just then, Matthew retrieves a small, crumpled-up skirt from a shelf in the otherwise immaculate closet. He looks it over briefly and then confirms that it is indeed the skirt Emily was wearing the evening before. When re-entering the living room, Officer Hollis, doing as he has been trained, asks Matthew Moore to walk him through their evening again and listens carefully while jotting notes to see if anything about his story has changed. This time, Matthew mentions that before returning home from the Bookdale Springs, they stopped at his father's house, where they apparently gardened for nearly four hours, before returning to their condo to change clothes and wash up before hitting the town for Emily's birthday. After rehashing the prior day's events, Matthew calmly wanders off into the living room, while Officer Hollis stands in the kitchen looking around. He suddenly looks up as if reflecting, and without any solicitation from Officer Hollis, states aloud, quote, Um, suicide, man. I would... Uh, don't know. I... my son committed suicide. Matthew then explains that his son killed himself, and that both he and Emily were very close. He then continues talking, describing in detail how he has searched the house high and low for any signs of where his wife may have gone. He even explains to Officer Hollis how he climbed up through the attic hatch to have a look around in the attic, but that due to her small size she would be unable to get herself up there, so there was no need to search the space any further. Officer Hollis then advises Matthew to go back online and check her Facebook to see if she has made any new posts or communicated with anyone, to which Matthew responds he has already done some, quote, checking on that while holding her phone. Officer Hollis leaves Matthew there in the kitchen to connect with some other officers who are actively searching for her. Matthew Moore begins combing through Emily's Facebook account there in their kitchen, from her phone. Officer Hollis returns a short while later, after making contact with several other officers who had been actively searching in the woods and surrounding homes. He informs Matthew that one of his neighbors claims to have seen Emily that very morning. The revelation appears to bring Matthew great relief as he breathes deeply, pantomiming gentle pats on his chest while holding a thumbs up to Officer Hollis while smiling broadly. Before departing once again, Officer Hollis informs Matthew that Westerville police were planning to make contact with another individual who had apparently taken Emily in a few years before after police were called on her for being drunk in public. Matthew seems surprised at the information as he does not seem to know who the mystery man is that took Emily in that evening. A man Officer Hollis explained would, quote, take care of her and make sure nothing else happened, according to the original police report. Officer Hollis once again departs the residence to make some additional phone calls to initiate contact with the individual in question to see if he has seen or heard from Emily Noble. But before doing so, he reassures Matthew that the chances of something bad happening to Emily are slim and explains that after speaking with her friend Celeste, he fully believes that Emily thought of Matthew as, quote, the love of her life and that they would find her soon. That part I don't know, and the part that, that, that we 
try to figure out is there are two things we try to figure out when someone's reporting missing. Did they do it on purpose or did someone take them? And that's what we, we always try to do. I don't care if it's kids. That's someone took her? Very, very low. Um, very low. But like, like I said, you know your wife. We don't know her if, if I don't know if she was deep in thought. I don't know if she was upset about something. But you understand something doesn't make sense if she is squared away like I see her to be. And she leaves without her phone, her keys, her ID, you know, money. You know, she just, I'm done. We'll walk off. Officer Hollis connects with law enforcement in a neighboring county to check in on the man who took Emily Noble in a few years before, after police were called for her public drunkenness. Police quickly make contact with this man, but like the others, he too has not seen or heard from her since she disappeared earlier that morning. Before departing for the evening, Officer Hollis reconnects with Matthew Moore one last time. While standing out front of the condo and presenting him with his business card and contact information, Matthew wants to show him one more thing, something in the garage he found that is clearly out of place. I'm, I'm so much shit thrown into my head right now. Right. Let me, let me show you one thing. Okay. Is this because I'm crazy? No, show me. This thing here, I don't, I don't know. This thing here doesn't belong here. What do you mean it doesn't belong here? It doesn't belong here. Now, can she reach that? But she's very short. Matthew takes Officer Hollis to the front of the garage, where on a countertop height workbench, there sits the cooler from their trip to the Bookdale Natural Spring. On top of that is a bright orange extension cord reel, with approximately 50 feet of cord still attached. He then explains how they inherited the property from Emily's mother, and that everything has its place there in the neatly arranged garage, while motioning up toward an empty hook on the wall where the extension cord should be. Without saying it, Matthew again reflects on the possibility that his wife Emily may have in some way harmed herself, though he has already told Officer Hollis multiple times that she was not suicidal. A lot of people get things wrong. You know what I mean? Don't they? Just get things wrong. I don't know. But I'm telling you, I'm positive that this was here and it wasn't there. Well, you guys put the thing there. After showing Officer Hollis the bottled spring water inside of the cooler, the two men stand near the back of the garage next to a large cabinet, when Matthew notices a pair of shoes hastily kicked off there on the floor, and he confirms they are indeed the shoes Emily was wearing the night before. They suddenly hear Matthew's phone ringing out from inside, so both men re-enter through the kitchen. Once inside, the living space is noticeably darker this time than it was previously, as Matthew has most of the shades drawn and the lights turned off. Officer Hollis then asks Matthew if Emily may have left behind any of her credit cards, as it might be one way they could track her if she brought them along and was currently using them. Matthew then heads toward the master bedroom to check, walking throughout the condo in near-total darkness, and Officer Hollis follows him, retrieving his flashlight from his duty belt along the way. Both men converge near the bed and Emily's nightstand, when Matthew apparently notices something else out of place. What side of the bed does she sleep on? Uh, she always sleeps on another thing. If she would have made this bed, she would have fixed the pillows. The pillows aren't made. Okay. That she would have straightened the pillows. They're like this. That, that to me means that we were in here, maybe sleeping just on top or... or you know what I mean? And I just don't know. It's, it's not normal. Not normal. When she goes to make a bed, she fixes the pillows. When you say you were sleeping in a bed last night, right? Yeah. 
Okay. And, and, and we were drinking, and I'm not as foggy, but um, I remember getting up on head of a Matthew informs Officer Hollis that though the bed has been made, the pillows on Emily's side are hastily thrown about, instead of neatly plumped and stacked as she would have made it. Again, according to Matthew, this is out of her character. He then reflects aloud again on the topic of suicide, asking Officer Hollis if someone were to harm themselves, whether they would just up and leave or if they would attempt to hide their plans. Again, a rather bizarre inclination from the man who just hours before explained how great their relationship was, and that Emily was definitely not the type to harm herself. After slowly walking through the bedroom, shining his flashlight along each wall and along the open carpeted floor, Officer Hollis doesn't see anything else out of place or indicative of foul play, so he prepares to leave. Before departing, Matthew asks him if he should be calling people or posting to Emily's Facebook, to alert her friends and family that she is missing and to see if anyone has seen or heard from her. Officer Hollis again recommends that, yes, he should be doing this. And so Matthew picks up Emily's cell phone and continues reaching out to friends and family on the device. Officer Hollis, obtaining no actual evidence of any type of crime occurring in the home, then leaves. On May 27th, a search warrant for Emily and Matt's home was obtained. When officers searched the residence, they found the clothes Emily had been wearing the evening of her birthday while out on the town with her husband. Investigators were able to determine this fact by matching articles of clothing to those shown in the selfies taken by the couple from the evening of May 24th while they were out at the bars. This is important for a few reasons. Number one, possible DNA. And number two, it was a clear indication that Emily changed her outfit before mysteriously vanishing the following morning. The same day the search warrant was obtained, Matthew Moore was asked to come down to the Westerville Police Department for an interview, a request to which he obliged. Things start off pretty normal. Miranda rights are read and formalities are taken care of, but it wouldn't be long into the interview when Matt Moore finally realizes that he is being considered as a possible person of interest in the case. We could have done this at my house. No, this part we can't. We can't because it's not voluntary. No, it's completely really voluntary. And I can leave. Yeah. I don't want to. I'm just. Yeah. No, you can try that over right now. At some point, could we like? I want to help you. I want to get this going because I didn't do it and I want you to find whatever else I can do. Though the detective interviewing Matthew Moore has read him his Miranda rights, informing him that anything shared during the interview can and will be used against him, he agrees to talk, though he does appear somewhat nervous and presents an interesting choice of words. He shares that he wants them to, quote, find who did it. But at this point, no one actually knows what happened to Emily Noble or where she went so his phrasing seems odd. Find who did what. Before beginning with a series of questions, the lead detective asks Matthew to compile a written statement of events from the night of Emily's birthday through the following morning when she disappeared. Matthew responds that while he will provide a formal written statement, he's hesitant and doesn't want to provide any false information that could potentially be used against him, so he doesn't want to include any specific times in the statement. He also asked the detective for help with spelling certain words, because, like recalling specific times, it's something he apparently has great trouble with. Together? Do I tell? Do I say we had sex? Or? It, 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 any details like that? I mean, we're all about me love, I guess. It's your birthday. Fell asleep. I fell asleep. I'm not sure if she did. She might stay up. I'm not sure, but I passed out. Woke up. Went up to, to pee. To pee and urinate. I did look at the clock. I don't want to say that I knew what time it was, but whenever I wake up to go to the bathroom, I look at the clock to see how close it is to the morning. And that determines whether I take a sleeping pill or not. Okay. Which is, I 
Matthew Moore continues on like this for several minutes, meticulously reflecting and spelling out what he remembers from the evening before Emily disappeared and into the early morning hours of Monday. In his statement, he explains that after getting up to use the restroom sometime around 1 a.m., he then went to his late son's old bedroom to sleep on the couch, but remembers that he couldn't sleep, so he was up until nearly dawn, but he can't be sure. He remembers posting to Facebook and texting with his stepfather, recalling that he initially sent his stepdad a text at some time around 3 a.m., but he also remembers possibly still being awake at 8 a.m. when he responded to the message because he wrote back immediately. From what I saw today, I actually texted back to him at 8, so I might have been awake later than I thought. But at some point, at some point, late... Morning, we late, late morning, late night, early morning, or hey, yeah, you know, late, I, I could, like eight, seven, six, seven, one of it, late, late night, late, early morning. At some point, was it sun up? Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. At some point, it, I'm gonna say it was starting to be dawn because um, there's a reason for that because usually I do fall back sleep before it gets light out and then I usually wake up at like 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock. You know what I mean? It's like, I didn't wake up until like past 11, I think. I could have woke up a few times in between then and at some point fell back to sleep. Matthew's strange approach to crafting his written statement in front of the detective could certainly be interpreted as someone who is stalling. Someone desperately looking for a reason to hold off on writing anything down, perhaps as a means of buying themselves a little more time. But while Matthew Moore does seem to be a well-spoken man in his 50s, he does have an apparent history of difficulty with memory recollection and spelling, as he suffered a traumatic brain injury several decades before. He was in a terrible car crash when he was just 19 years old, a crash that left him in a coma for some time which may help explain his at times bizarre trouble with spelling, writing, and recalling specific details like time. As he continues crafting his written statement, Matthew recalls that at some point during the late afternoon hours on Monday, he finally realized that Emily's phone, car, and other belongings were still at the house. And that's when he called her friend Celeste, and eventually the police. Before formal questioning begins, Matthew quickly recites his entire written statement aloud, while another detective enters the room to join them. Though Matthew continues interjecting his reflections aloud while reading the statement, detectives are still at a loss for just how much detail he has actually left out of the statement. So they begin their questioning at the beginning and ask him about Sunday night after the two had arrived back home after celebrating Emily's birthday. And you guys hung out and talked? We hung out in the kitchen and we got really along really super well. It was her birthday. We started making out and we went to the bedroom and we had sex. Okay. And that's in. So there's the, like the master bedroom. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure that I'm, I'm different. The master bedroom. And then there's the, the, what you called your man cave. And that would be my son. That Joey's room? Yeah. Okay. Just to make sure that I'm separating right. So 
You went to your bedroom and had sex. I went into the master bedroom with my wife. Yes, sir. And that's where she likes. Sometimes she sleeps on the on on the porch on the ground. She likes to be outside. I don't know if she went in there like at some point. As far as I know, I fell asleep. I woke up because I have to pee. Um, she was there. I mean, I would know if she wasn't. I would just you know, you know, if your wife said not there. I didn't have any inkling that though she wasn't there. I remember looking at the clock because I like to time my when I have how much time I have left to sleep. So I, whether I take a pill, fall asleep or not, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't know. I might have been drunk enough to go kind like not and I went into Joey's room. But on the couch, it's something that happens every night. I don't think there's a night that goes by that I sleep all the way through and measure that I always have to get up cooking because I'm not passive. And um, it, I do remember it, usually it's pretty much I fall asleep an hour. This one, I was lying in bed for quite a bit. And I made a couple texts and I had it on my phone today. today. Actually, I looked at my phone today and I, I think, I don't know how it works, but it was an 8 o'clock phone call. So, you got up to go pee, and the routine is after you pee, then you don't climb back into bed with her? Yeah. Yeah. And the routine is that you look at the clock to see if you should take a sleeping pill or not? How much time I have left before, you know, if it's like real late into the night, mm -hmm. I won't take one and stuff. Just have, yeah, but it's early. But I don't know. It was early, but I don't know if I took one or not. Do you know what type of medicine? It's like a ambien, but it's uh, some other derivative of ambien, and I take half of them. Okay. All right. And they definitely like your head. But you don't remember that night you took one? I don't remember. And I probably not because I was up making phone calls, or not phone calls, but texting. And, and Who, who's up at that time? Uh, you'd have to check. Uh, I have a friend in Vegas, so he would be, and he's up at so it's three, it's twelve out there. I'm not sure you'll have to check. You don't remember who you texted? At various points throughout his response, Matthew expresses that detectives will quote, have to check my phone, as he does not recall the specifics of who he may have texted and at what time. At this point during the interview, not only were police back at Emily and Matt's condo executing a search warrant, but they were also searching through his phone for any digital forensic clues that may have been left behind. While racking his brain and trying to remember the text messages he sent to Emily late Monday morning, Matthew recalls something he had said previously to Officer Hollis, something that he got wrong, and wants to clarify his previous claim and set the record straight when he claimed that Emily never goes out foraging or walking alone at night. She, she goes out with these foraging, forest things, and she does this route, and um, he was like, does she ever go out at night, you know, by herself? And I'm like, no. She doesn't mind that. There's something that, and, and, but she does. At, at times, now that I think of it, especially if she's got a buzz and she's drinking, she'll get that, she'll grab a flashlight and she'll, she'll go on us and she comes back with the, the forge and she shows them. Can you rewind over a quick question? So between 11 and 3, what were you doing? Were you just laying there on the couch? 11 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, it was. It was lying in my sunroom. I was kind of just chilling, recovering, waiting for her. Did you ever go to the bathroom at any point? Yeah, there was periods where I mean, I definitely got up. Did you know she was gone? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The first time when I texted her and said, Are we going to this party? And she didn't get back to me. I checked the find my phone, and the phone said that she was there. So I'm like, okay, you know what I mean? At some point that happened. So it just didn't, okay, she's, she's doing her thing, she's gonna come in and get me more ready to go, or whatever. At some point, it didn't happen, she didn't come in and get me. I got up, went out there, I don't between 11 and 3 at some point. It still wasn't a big concern. I wasn't like, you know, freaked out. I, I kind of went around a little bit. And, and the, first, the first thing I did was look to see if her car was there. Though it's easy to get lost in his recollection of events, Matthew explains to detectives here that he believes Emily was actually still at the house at around 8 a.m. because he was also on a group message with her and her sister. And he claims that Amy told him that she could see that Emily read the message at around 8 a.m. 
To bolster his claims, Matthew recalls that, while Officer Hollis was present in the home, he informed him that one of their neighbors had witnessed Emily in their garage between 9 and 10 a.m., a claim that, by the time he sat for his interview, had already been retracted from that neighbor because he couldn't be sure which day he had actually seen Emily. For eight in the she, Emily was there. That's my... And the guy across the street, John, said that he saw her at 10, 10 difficult to make out here after being confronted with the reality that his neighbor had since retracted his earlier claim that he had seen Emily in the garage that Monday morning. Matthew suddenly realizes that it, quote, makes it look bad for me then. He reiterates here that he loves his wife Emily, that he would never do anything to hurt her. He even offers up to detectives for them to have a look at his body to prove there were no scratches or other wounds from any sort of possible struggle. But the discussion continues slowly devolving from here as they press on further, asking about his and Emily's relationship and his son, Joey. You guys got married two years ago? We got married August 18, 28. Okay. And I had a son. We don't want to bring up that in my life, so let's, let's try and focus on... Okay, because I'm Oh, schizophrenia is the worst thing that happened to me. I don't know what to know. What do you want to know? The audio is difficult to make out here, but Matt says that they loved each other and then begins to cry. We learn here that Matt's son, Joey, who was just a few days shy of his 18th birthday, committed suicide one year prior to this interview in 2019. After my son died, there was tension stress. Tragically, the teenager hung himself and was found deceased with a cable around his neck in the woods. Matt goes on to express the sorrow he and Emily were both still suffering as a result of Joey's death. Matt had expressed since the very beginning his belief that Emily may have taken her own life, but it's difficult to get a read on him from this interview alone. Guys, I did not hurt her. I loved her. I would speculate she would have went down somewhere close. Was there a times when she would kind of say, you know, I'm not afraid to die. I mean, don't they all kind of be like that? You know, sort of nothing that I would ever call anybody to my wife's going to hurt herself. No. Why, why would you think she would hurt herself? I mean, possibility. Because she was, not, not, not that she ever would, I'm just saying, she, she was emotional. She would get emotional. Here, Matt refers once again to his wife, Emily Noble, in the past tense. These small yet crucial details are key aspects that investigators pick up on. If Matt thought Emily was, in fact, still alive, one would think he would use the term love rather than loved when speaking about his wife. They start to press on Matt a little harder, confronting him with text messages suggesting that his and Emily's marriage wasn't quite as happy as he'd initially made it out to seem. Some of the text messages sent from Emily to her friends contained the following. Matt and I are talking and are friendly, but it's not the kind of relationship I want. That message was sent just two weeks before Emily went missing. In another series of messages sent the month before in April, Emily said, quote, Matt picked a fight with me yesterday and said some awful things. I'm not wearing my wedding ring. Please don't talk about Matt and I in love. I think Matt is mentally ill. One of the detectives then reads several other text messages from a packet of transcripts printed from Emily's cell phone records. And the same day, we are talking. Reference your relationship. We're not talking. We're not talking. 
And uh, I don't want to talk about him. I'd rather focus on the future. By the way, Mac got really drunk last night. This was February. By the way, Mac got really drunk last night. Said some things I don't think he can take back. I'm fine. I'm pretty sure we are not going to stay together. What do you mean? I mean, we would argue about things, but I don't. I didn't think that it was that. What was it that you said? I, I she was mad. And she focused on one thing, yeah. Matt picked a fight against April. This was barely a month. She would accuse me of taking fights. Okay. This, this was this was a month ago, okay? This, mm-hmm. Matt, this is okay. this is heavy. Matt picked a fight with me yesterday and said some awful things. I'm not wearing my wedding ring. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like somebody who's in a happy relationship. My, was, I thought my wife texted that to somebody a month ago. I, I, I get it. I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that, that those things, of course, there was an, a, a roller coaster relationship, but it wasn't like anything that was anything you would think that someone would hurt someone. Just would be. I'm not, uh, I'm just addressing the fact that you, you just told me the last six months have been blessed in the name. Nah, yes. Okay. There have been levels of that. Okay. And you can check the other texts in the R. Super, I, I love I you. Saw it. I saw it. There are, it's very much a, a, a other down. I hold it with relationships. That would go away. That would really go away. Will you acknowledge that that's some pretty heavy shit when your wife said, I'm talking about my wedding ring? I don't think we're going to stay together. It's not um, as heavy as you think it is. You don't think that you don't think no, that you might think it is, but it's not. She would be like that at times because of her anger issues. It always swung back. We were always it just wasn't. Well, why would you have said that whenever they asked how your relationship means? I didn't even remember that because it's not in my mindset. The good times have been so good. When pressed on the true nature of their relationship, Matthew admits that while the couple had their issues and fought. He believed that the past six months or so of their relationship was, in his mind, really good, despite the picture painted by the text message exchanges. One detective then confronts Matthew with a statement shared by one of their neighbors, who claimed they heard Matthew and Emily fighting to the point it became a, quote, screaming match within just the past two weeks. Matthew responds by saying the two had not gotten into any sort of screaming match and that he was unsure who would have made such a claim. They then ask him if he used Emily's phone at any point to post to her Facebook page just two days prior on Monday when she had first gone missing. And though he couldn't specifically recall which phone he used, his or Emily's, it was Officer Hollis, if you recall, who actually suggested Matthew use Emily's phone if he didn't have any other means of reaching out to her friends or family. I'm sure I did. I can't say I definitively did, but I'm sure I got on some applications. I did, didn't I? I did. You guys know. I, I went on to say, this is Matt. I'm Emily's husband. She's missing. I must have. I had to. I just don't recall right now if I did. But I'm pretty. I mean, that would be the move to make. Right? I mean, just because we ask you a question, it, it doesn't mean that we're going at it. It's not a fair question. You're right. right. And I'm just, I'm just trying to tell you that I, if I don't, like, in my head, picture it, I don't want to say I did. But I'm. But, I mean, it would be the move to make. I mean, yeah, that, I, I must have. Okay. I've been using my phone, her phone, my phone, her phone for the last, what, this is Wednesday now? I mean, no day is anymore. The, I mean, it's, I've been using two phones, so it's it's looking at her friends. But you know you can't post from yours, so if you post into her Facebook account, it has to be through her phone. It has to be through her phone, there's no doubt about it. Did you use her phone for any other purpose? Like what? You text a few friends. You text some friends of hers, or any contacts. I'm or? sure I did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I had to because um, I don't have a lot of her friends' phone numbers and stuff. So yeah, that was, that's why when I gave the phone to you guys, I was like, you need that phone back to contact people. The detectives then ask Matthew directly for his opinion if he believes Emily may have hung herself. To which Matthew responds, "I don't know. I don't know." They press further, asking him if he believes she harmed herself in any way. Again, he responds, I don't know. I don't know. Finally, the detective sitting closest to Matthew asks, quote, Just what does your gut say? A question Matthew quietly answers by responding, That she hurt herself. They then ask if Emily were to hang herself, where might she do it? And Matthew responds, She would do it where she'd be easily found. She wouldn't want to cause a panic.
Ultimately, Matthew Moore was free to leave. After all, you can't arrest someone based on text messages indicating a possibly tumultuous romantic relationship or how strangely they respond to what most consider relatively straightforward, simple questions. Still, the interview did give detectives some insight toward what the two's home life had been like lately. Authorities didn't have enough to hold him, but it was clear at this juncture that Matt Moore was the only one they had their eyes on regarding the disappearance of his wife, 52-year-old Emily Noble. Matt Moore and Emily Noble met in 2015. Prior to that, Matt lived in Las Vegas for some 25 years. When his son Joey wasn't doing so well in school, Matt decided to make the move to Ohio, where his father lived. The three would ultimately live together. The idea was to get Joey into a better school system. Matt sought out special education programs that catered to his son's unique needs, along with having some additional family support. While in Ohio, Matt decided to test his luck with online dating, which is how he first met Emily Noble. His son Joey was in ninth grade at the time, and he was still struggling with his classes. Matt was working at a low-paying job as a dealer at a local casino, and money was tight. Around that time, his son Joey began exhibiting signs of declining mental health. Matt believed his son to be schizophrenic, though it's unclear if there were ever a formal diagnosis made. Matt didn't have health insurance and eventually made the decision to move back to Las Vegas with Joey to take his old job back. During this time, he maintained a long-distance relationship with Emily. In contrast to Matthew Moore, Emily did very well for herself professionally. She had a successful career working for the state of Ohio's Medicaid office and had been there for several years. Being the compassionate and caring woman that she is, Emily urged Matthew and Joey to come back to Ohio to live with her. She also offered it to help with Joey's medical expenses, revealing that she could have Joey added to her health insurance if they got married. And so, before long, that's exactly what they did. The couple would wed in August of 2018, and Matt, Joey, and Emily became a family. By most accounts, the relationship between Matt and Emily was great, for a while at least. Emily cared for Joey like he was her own son wouldn't be long, however, before tragedy struck just one year later, when 17-year-old Joey committed suicide, hanging himself in a wooded area not far from Emily's residence. The death obviously crushed Matthew Moore as his father, but it also hurt Emily equally. Matt became crippled with depression and soon lost his job. He was out of work and struggling to wake up each morning. He'd spend his days emotionally destitute and eventually turned to alcohol to help cope. He began drinking to excess. Emily also carried the immense weight of Joey's tragic death with her. She took a leave of absence from work in 2019 in an effort to heal from the loss of the boy she now considered her son. She also knew she needed to be there for Matt, her husband. He wasn't doing well, and it was clear to Emily that he needed her help. In August of that year, Emily began attending therapy sessions to help cope with her grief. But by the end of 2019, she quit seeking professional help abruptly. She then turned to more holistic methods of self-care, including foraging, appreciating nature, and taking hikes in the woods behind her condo. The devastating pain that comes along with such a great loss is something that stays with a person, and given what this couple had gone through, it seemed more understandable as to why Matt's initial concern may have been suicide regarding his wife's disappearance. With that being said, it was far too soon into the investigation to rule out anything or anyone just yet. This Westerville woman spent the evening with her husband celebrating her birthday. The next day, she vanished. That was more than three weeks ago. Tonight, Westerville police say they are running out of leads and they need your help finding Emily Noble. The searches were exhaustive and included drones, rescue divers and local dams, and even cadaver dogs and bloodhounds. All search efforts, however, turned up nothing. The areas Emily was known to visit, including the hiking trails she frequented often, were said to have been searched and combed through meticulously. Still, there were no signs of her. And as the month mark since Emily had gone missing rapidly approached, loved ones were beginning to fear for the worst, if they hadn't already. Her friend Wendy spoke to the media, recalling the day she learned 
Emily had disappeared. She expressed how she'd been coping as the search for the missing woman continued on fruitlessly. I had a feeling of dread. Um, I cried immediately. We just don't think she would have just walked away. What I've been saying to our friends is to hold a light in your heart for Emily that we find out what happened and that we either find her and bring her home or get justice for her. Missing person, Emily Noble, Westerville, Ohio. Last seen on May 24th, 2020. Eye color brown, age 52. Height, 5 foot 0 inches. Weight, 100 pounds. If you have seen Emily or know of her whereabouts, call the Westerville Police Department. Flyers like these were posted all over town and across neighboring communities. Emily's once smiling face had faded as the paper cardstock became weathered and deteriorated. It was an unsettling symbol that she had been gone for far too long. Her friends and family desperately waited for the day they could take the flyers down, whether that action came from finding her safe and sound or from something worse, having to lay Emily to rest and say their goodbyes. But the flyers would remain and continued to be hung up throughout Westerville, Ohio. Emily's husband, Matthew Moore, created a Facebook group entitled Find Emily Noble. Matt's profile picture was the very same photo of Emily that was used on the flyer. He posted this to the Facebook page. My name is Matt Moore. I'm Emily's husband. I will personally pay $10,000 for any information that will lead to the safe return of my wife. Share this entire post on your personal Facebook page every day for a week. And tell your Facebook friends to share this post every day on their personal page for a week as well. If we all do this exponentially, We could inform millions. You might be asking yourself at this point, hang on a second, I thought Matt Moore had no job and was broke. Where the hell is he getting this $10,000 for the reward money? Well, Moore was broke, until his mother passed away, that is. In 2019, Matthew Moore inherited upwards of $400,000 after his mother's death. This information will become relevant again later on. But as it stood now, those who knew Matt Moore and Emily Noble seemed to be at odds with one another. Many believed Matt knew more than he was letting on, that he wasn't telling the whole truth, and that he might have actually had something to do with her disappearance. Others viewed the two as the mostly happy couple, that both had been going through immense grief at the time Emily vanished. But it seemed Matthew Moore's biggest mistake during the initial stages of the search for his wife was not participating in a police interview without an attorney present. It wasn't posting through Emily's personal Facebook account using her phone, or messaging her friends directly, which many people viewed as suspicious. Instead, perhaps the most detrimental action taken by Matthew Moore, as it pertained to his initial presumption of innocence, was arguably when he reached out for help, deciding to do an interview with a popular true crime podcast one that purported to show his true character. The Matthew Moore, only those closest to Emily Noble, felt they already knew all along. Next time on Invisible Choir. Today we received word from the coroner's office that Emily Noble's dental records uh, are consistent with the remains that were found off County Line Road last week. He came over, and I know he did. For some reason, he ended up, yeah, putting his hands around my neck. And he started to choke him. And uh, he stopped. We've done several stories since Emily Noble's disappearance, speaking with her friends, loved ones, and with those searching for her. Never once did we speak with her husband, Matthew Moore. He did, however, speak with a true crime podcast last summer. 